we had a phrase that we used in our family. I say to, yeah, to Sam as we try to instill character in my son, my 10-year-old son, we're truth speakers and promise keepers. Truth speakers, promise keepers. God being my helper, that's what we will be. Welcome to Life in Christ. My name is Pastor Brent Nelson. I'm one of the pastors here at The Landing, a church in Duluth, Minnesota. This is a podcast where we talk as elders about the Word of God and the truths that the Word of God teaches and is in order that we might stir up and strengthen, disciple, and bless the faith family at The Landing. We're glad you tuned in. With me today is one of our church elders, Kevin Johnson. Kevin, welcome. Thank you for having me. This is part two of a conversation we're having about teaching from Wayne Grudem's book, Christian Ethics, on purity of speech. Uh, We had a a conversation previously, and it was very enlightening, talking about not taking the name of the Lord our God in vain and how that implies a life of blessing and not cursing, and how that implies speaking what builds up others and not what tears them down. It was a great conversation. We'll continue that conversation today. It's important to say that when we're talking about these topics of Christian ethics with the elders at the landing, they taught this material previously in adult Sunday school class format, and now we're sharing the same material in a conversational podcast format. What we want to emphasize is that we're drawing from and standing firmly on the shoulders of Dr. Wayne Grudem, looking at his material as it's been published in his book on Christian ethics, but also we want to fully acknowledge the biblical doctrine of Christian liberty or Christian freedom. That's the idea where we're seeing major, large, strong principles in Scripture that we want to uphold with all our might and apply in every way that we can without becoming rigid or mechanical. So last time, for instance, we talked about, uh, is there a list of vocabulary words that we have to forbid ourselves from saying prohibited words? Well, we didn't want to come up with a list, but we rather say, use only those words that abound in thanksgiving and establish grace in others. Today we're talking about two topics. The first one's called oaths and vows, and the second one will be humor. Well, how does Dr. Grudem define oaths and vows? An oath, as you look in his chapter on this topic, chapter 11, I believe it was, an oath is an appeal for God's punishment if your statement is untruthful. An appeal to God's punishment if your statement is untruthful. I don't know about you, but uh, as I do my daily Bible, you're doing the Shane McShane yes. passage. I was doing the same thing. And as I was preparing for this, there you couldn't like throw a stone without hitting an oath in, in my daily reading. It was right. all over the place. In That's Genesis, right. in Nehemiah, it was in Acts. It was every place I turned. It seems like when you got a new car, it was you, you could see that car everywhere. You never saw the car until you bought it. And it's all over the place. So oaths were like that for me as I was preparing for this. Well, is it is it okay to make an oath? You're just going to cut right to yeah. it, aren't we? Okay. <laughs> yes. We did a lot of buildup in the Sunday school class That's before right. we asked that question. Yeah, there's several verses that we see an endorsement, or at least uh, seems like a positive inclination of oaths. So Genesis 21, Abraham, mm-hmm. makes, Abraham makes an oath with Abimelech, uh, Nehemiah, uh, as, as following kind of a public reading of the law, there's an upswell in the nation's devotion to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And we see that uh, at, in Nehemiah 10, 29, that they, mm-hmm. they, Israel as a nation makes an oath. God himself makes an oath. So you read those passages, you think, unqualified, yes. Yeah. Oaths should be okay to take. Mm-hmm. But then we turn to the prickly part of Matthew 5, 33 mm-hmm. through 37. So again, you've heard 
that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. Mm-hmm. You shall not perform to the, to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So twice there, you see Jesus specifically saying, do not take an oath. So is it yes or is it no? What do you think? I think that's a wonderful question, but I think Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5 is a summary of the aims of the oaths in the Old Testament, leading Christians under the cross to no longer take oaths in the same way that they were taken in the Old Testament because he has become our yes and amen. Right. That's my understanding of Matthew 5, that he's preparing a fulfillment. You've heard it said from the Pharisees, but I say to you, and he seems to be drawing attention, my my reading of it, drawing attention to the original intent of the Old Testament law to bring about the awareness that we need a transformed heart. I need the Spirit of God to come into my heart and not lead me to point away to the worth of something else for someone to believe that I'm truthful in what I'm saying, but for them to see in my life that a transformation, the new birth has happened, that when I say yes, my yes is yes. When I say no, my no is no. I think what Jesus is alluding to is the new birth. Yeah, I think so. And obviously our character should be so stalwart, so grounded in God that they think of Brent saying yes, and they say, well, that's going to happen. Your daughter, when she hears you make a promise to do something, it's going to happen, Daddy. Of course. Uh, Some of the commentators on that passage in particular were talking about how the Pharisees and some others in the time would involve this verbal trickery, as it were. Like, if you say this, this, and this, then you can kind of skirt around speaking the truth. It, It... it's only if we swear by the gold that's on the altar, then it would be a truthful statement. What you're saying, is, and what Grimm and, and our forefathers in the faith would agree, is that our character so ought to be sol- so solid that yes means yes. You do not need to swear. You do not need to, to make an oath for people to trust you because they know that your yes is going to be yes. So that kind of comes back down to the tension of what ought to and what is. Um, there is that tension right now uh, in this fallen world. But Well, just by way of clarity... What you've just, you and I have just described does not cast any shadow on the Old Testament use of oaths. There is room in the Old Testament to use oaths, especially because it's the Old Testament. Christ hasn't come yet. And now that Christ has come, now that the Spirit of God dwells within us and the promises of the Old Testament that God will send His Holy Spirit into our hearts, now that we're in this moment of biblical redemptive history, we can say, my yes is yes and my no is no. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I can tell you who I am and what I believe and what I'm going to do, God being my helper. That's right. Not that we know the future or can control the future any more than they did in the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the cross. We have the, the, the wonderful blessing of looking backward to the cross. That would be my added clarity so that I'm not in any way critiquing the way God himself takes oaths or the other uh, faithful uh, believers in the Old Testament take oaths. I think we can can in good conscience take an oath. I think we have that liberty, that freedom yes. to do that. And yes. yet we're recognizing, going back to our systematic theology, that God is sovereign over all things. So adding even the phrase that you just used a second ago, God being my helper, yes. yes. By the grace of God, of course. We had a phrase that we use in our family. I say to, yeah, to Sam as we try to instill character in my son, my 10-year-old son. 
We're truth speakers and promise keepers. Truth speakers, promise keepers. God being my helper, that's what we will be. So a vow is similar to an oath, but distinct. That was some confusion that I think I've had and others even in the class were talking about. A vow is distinct from an oath. They're similar, but a vow is a promise made to God to perform a certain action or behave a certain way. Mm -hmm. You can think of vows such as when Hannah makes a vow as she desires for a child. If, Lord, you give me a child, I will dedicate him to you, which she does. Or you can think of Jacob Bethel, not necessarily a person of faith at that point. He's setting up a pillar, but he promises to God, and and he and God ends up bringing that fulfillment for him. Right. Um, you can think of Nazarite vows as number six, or laws about vows such as in Numbers thirty verses two through nine, or Deuteronomy twenty three twenty one, Ecclesiastes five four and five. Jephthah's got a foolish vow. If you want an example of what not to do in a vow, that's a good example in Judges eleven. So there's lots of vows that we can see in there. It doesn't necessarily make them right or wrong by seeing there's lots of examples, though. Uh, we can see a wrong example for sure. If we make vows, we they're voluntary. I think that's an important thing to make distinction. Right. I don't think anyone's going to make Brent make a vow here. Right. No one's coming in here and, and doing that. By definition, so, you couldn't. Right. You can force the words, but you haven't made a vow. Right. Yeah. So it's a voluntary action. And so if someone were to make a vow, they should not make a vow a sinful vow, you know, a foolish vow. And if they do, they should trust and lean into the grace of God and not, instead of pursuing that sin, they ought to lean on his grace instead. Um, so one example of a positive vow that I think all of us can, can think about is a wedding vow, where couples may or may not recognize they're not only making a promise to one another, but they're also under the watchful eye of God making a promise to him, a vow to him. So wouldn't it be just magnificent if we... Those who are embracing marriage recognize and submit their union daily to him. They would plead for God's strength and grace mm. to enable them mm. to fulfill this sober words that they're saying to one another in his, in his presence. Wonderful view of marriage, wonderful view of vows. If you make a good and godly vow, ask the Lord for grace to keep it. Let's turn the topic away from vows and oaths to the broader topic of humor. How does the Bible use the word humor? I don't know that many people read their Bible looking for something funny. Yeah, I I think that um, when I took a, I had people raise their hands, who thinks that humor is okay? I don't think there was anybody that kept their hand down there. There's other topics. I've asked questions, had mixed results. But I think everyone, um, I think out of an impulse for joy and, and laughter, raised their hand. And we can think about verses such as Ecclesiastes 3.4, uh, where you see a time to weep and a time to laugh, sure. a time to mourn and a time to dance. So there is a time for weeping. shouldn't always be marked by laughter, but there's not always, you shouldn't be Eeyore walking along the street all the time. There should be moments of distinct joy and laughter. Or Luke 6, 21, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. I, I think that multiple passages, we find that laughter is a natural. It's not a fallen reaction, a f- not fallen flesh or sinful anyways. There's a natural lightness and in, in found surprise or happiness that results in laughter and humor. And we see some examples of that, like Genesis 21, where Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears it will laugh over me. Now, they're not pointing their finger and laughing mockingly. We see examples of that in the Bible, too. Pointing laughter, laughter of derision, things like that. This is a joyful, unexpected surprise laughter. It's a good, positive laughter. That's a tremendous, helpful distinction, Kevin, because you just said a moment ago something I think a lot of our listeners might pause on, laughter in and of itself is not a part of the fall. Right. Laughter is not a part of the fall. 
In fact, you gave examples here of virtuous, faithful laughter. We're so conditioned in our culture to think that a, a spiritual person is solemn and serious that laughing people are actually probably doing something, if not sinful, then something foolish or a waste of time. But in fact, there are examples of biblical laughter and really promises of laughter in the Bible. So now we have to talk about two or more kinds of humor or laughter, one rooted in the flesh and unbelief, one rooted in faith. Well, we see lots of examples of humor in Scripture. And there's, as you think about your own personal life, but you can think in, in the Word as well, there's laughter that surprises, like we saw in Sarah. There's instances of irony. Mm-hmm. Those ought to be laughter. That's not a, a belly laugh kind of thing often, but it's you see it and you think, oh, that that is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. You may not come out roaring from that, but you think that that's very humorous. So you sure. can think of an example like uh, Elijah, uh, when he is... He and ba- the worshippers of Baal are having this contest, which is no contest, obviously. There is not a, uh, it's not an even battle. Right. There, Elijah starts mocking them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's a mu- maybe he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep and just needs to be woken up. That's First Kings that you see that. It's a huge form of irony and surprise, sarcasm. They're found all over the Bible, and, and that's just one example. I was reading through Esther 6. Haman, I mean, he spends five, God sends, spends five chapters building this part up where you could not manufacture this situation that happens. It is so ironic where Haman ends up having to praise and give accolades to this person he detests, right. somebody that he had set up for failure. He, his demise was sure, Mordecai's, and the whole people were going to get wiped out. He could not wait another day. So he goes and insists an audience with the king. The king makes him go give praise, all this, these accolades. And it's just... Really ironic, very funny. In the New Testament, we find passages like Ephesians 5, and you note that here. It says, Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So there's a kind of humor that's very appropriate, and then there's a kind to steer clear of. Right. Rooted in, in unbelief, rooted in sin. Rooted in pride, maybe, to put someone down and thereby possibly elevate myself. Yeah, I like the example you use of, of uh, friends of ours that we've known. Maybe some of our listeners will know uh, Pastor Duncan Ross and Darren Streblo. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that, that moment when you, when you heard Darren. Well, Darren's a great comedian, personal friend. Yes. Love him. Love Duncan as well. Uh, Duncan was celebrating a milestone. The church wanted to rally around him. Mm-hmm. They called the secretary, called Darren to say, Darren, I think it'd be very appropriate for you to come and allow people a time of humor. So come be funny, but not too funny. (laughs) Come be funny, but not too funny. And of course, he shared that detail in the ceremony, which got some chuckles as well. Sure. The problem is not the degree of humor. Some things can be masterfully funny. Esther 6, supremely funny. It's not a problem of the degree of funniness. It's the source of the, hum- of the, the humor. So like uh, what you're talking about, which really reflects back on what we talked about last time, which is image bearers tearing those down. That is, that is in many ways taking the Lord's name in vain because you're dismissing, you're being derogatory and, and humiliating, bringing down somebody made in his image. That'd be one example. Another thing that could be an example where humor is not used rightly, so it's not instilling grace and bringing uh, joy, is maybe taking one of those sober moments that God has meant for a redemptive purpose. There's a time to weep. We talked about that just a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
one of the questions I asked the audience during my Sunday school is, is it ever appropriate to use humor at the pulpit? Yeah. What's your answer? I think it's appropriate to use humor if three qualifications are met. One, if it does not distract from the passage and from the main point, but enhances it. Two, if it does not degrade or humiliate or belittle anyone, but exalts the Lord. And three, if it is not a cause for stumbling for anyone who's listening. Those are the categories that I try to apply. I receive them from from preaching manuals and other preachers. Uh, I think I would be drawing there on Martin Lloyd-Jones and John MacArthur, maybe somewhat of John Piper. Those would be the men to whom I would credit for those observations. I don't know that I've always observed that and obeyed that correctly. I do know those have been in my mind. Yeah. I think there's times where preachers can use humor effectively. I think you do that well, by God's grace. But it's like a strong seasoning. You don't want it to be the main ingredient. Right. When, when it is... That is the inappropriate use mm-hmm. of the pulpit and of God's word. It's not highlighting him in that sense. So right, right. Um, C.S. Lewis, and I read this quote, I think it was in a pa- uh, pa- one of the papers I was reviewing, um, a quote by him. It says, we're not to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of the kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. I think what we find is a church that you described a little bit ago that's always feeling the need to be sober. I mean, there is a gravitas behind our message, but there ought to be joy as well. So humor is entirely appropriate, I think, at times, but in the right places, using those frameworks uh, as God provides. Yeah, very good, very helpful. One of the things that comes to my mind when we think about humor this carefully and draw these lines is the complement to humor, and that's lament. Mm. I often think about the fact that in our Christian culture, we maybe don't have as sharp of an understanding of humor as the Bible would afford us to have, and we don't have as clear an understanding of lament as the Bible would offer. Mm. Humor, I think, at its best, as we've talked about it, is a means of glorifying God. It can be and should be a means of glorifying God. Certainly the examples you pointed out in Scripture, certainly the best use of humor in our lives, in all settings and and contexts, is a means of saying, the Lord rejoices over us with songs of rejoicing, Zephaniah 3.17. And he calls us to have a joy in him that becomes our strength. May the joy of the Lord be your strength, Nehemiah 8.10. I think also, and similarly in a complementary fashion, God is praised by lament. He's praised by lament in this way. Lament is the assumption that things ought to be just as glorious and as good and as pure and as peaceful as God is, but the reality is they're not. The gap between how high and glorious they could be and should be and where they really are with all the loss and pain of sin and the curse of sin upon the world creates a gap, and within that gap, Christians lament. Hmm. It's a, a way of saying, Lord, my sorrow and words of sorrow are not complaint. They're not criticism. They're not grumbling. They're lament because they yearn and ache for you to restore and reestablish and renew what you've commanded that we don't see present. So I think of humor and lament almost as a pair. Hmm. That's helpful. 
This is a really great conversation, Kevin. Thank you so much for the labor and effort and pastoral care that you've put in in teaching this to us as an adult Sunday school class, as well as now to a wider audience by this podcast. Uh, Would you be willing to close our conversation with a word of prayer? Absolutely. Lord, we lift up your name. We want to glorify it. We do not want to make it lifted up to worthlessness, but we want to esteem you highly, magnify you, and glorify you. That's our purpose. That's how you designed us. So let us fulfill the purpose. Let us bridge that gap by the, the cross of Christ to glorify you with the purity of words. Lord, with the psalmist in verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 14, I, I ask that you let the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For your glory, for our joy, I pray this. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. If you're listening to this podcast and you feel like your words have not always glorified the Lord, know that there is grace. Call upon the Lord and find the grace that we've talked about many times already for yourself. Receive it by faith. Take that grace that Christ purchased for you on the cross. If you've never known Christ and your concern is that others have used words in a painful way to harm or condemn or belittle or even crush you, know that that very same ocean of grace is meant for your healing. It's meant for your renewal and restoring. It really can happen. You can be restored, even if it feels like a million miles away from you right now. Would you reach out to the Lord? Cry out to Him in prayer. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Paul says to the Romans. Thanks for listening to Life in Christ. My name is Brent Nelson, one of the pastors here at The Landing. It's been our pleasure to have this conversation with you. We look forward to more. Take care. Thank you for listening to Life in Christ. This podcast is a ministry of The Landing Church in Duluth, Minnesota. For more resources or information about The Landing, visit www.thelanding.church.